Hello, I'm Ian Frazier. I write for the New Yorker magazine. And uh, I want to welcome you all here to the New Yorker Festival and to this event, a uh, conversation with uh, Janet Malcolm. Janet Malcolm's writing has been appearing in the New Yorker for almost 50 years. She was born in Czechoslovakia in 1934 came to America with her parents in 1939 and grew up in New York City. Her father was a psychiatrist and a neurologist. She has a younger sister, Marie Wynn. Marie writes about nature, has published several books on the subject. Janet went to the High School of Music and Art in Manhattan. It's now LaGuardia. Uh, It's over by Lincoln Center. And then she went to the University of Michigan. While in college, she wrote short fiction, news stories for the school paper, the Michigan Daily, and pieces for the college humor magazine, The Gargoyle. She became the Gargoyle's editor. After college, she married Donald Malcolm, a writer and critic, and wrote occasional book reviews for The New Republic. The couple moved to New York City, where Donald Malcolm reviewed books and off-Broadway plays for The New Yorker. Janet published her first work, a poem, in The New Yorker in 1963. Her early pieces in the magazine were about Christmas shopping, children's books, and design. She had a monthly column called About the House. In the 1970s, she began to write on photography and published those pieces in a collection called Diana and Nikon, Essays on the Aesthetic of Photography her first book, which came out in 1980. In 1978, uh, as a result of quitting smoking, she says, uh, she began to write differently, turning to the long and complex reporting pieces for which she is known. Her portrait of a Manhattan psychiatrist called Psychoanalysis, the Impossible Profession, appeared in 1981, and with it began the familiar pattern of Janet Malcolm Pieces making a big splash in the magazine. Readers loved reading about this psychiatrist, pseudonymously called uh, Aaron Green. And psychiatrists discussed it, argued about it. They still talk about it. This work was followed by another long piece on psychoanalysis in the Freud archives, which told the story of a controversial Sanskrit scholar and analyst named Jeffrey Mason, who was hired to run the archives, of Freud's, uh, the archives of Freud's letters and other documents on the birth of psychoanalytic theory, and who was fired by the trustees of the archives because of comments he made in articles in the New York Times. In the Freud Archives came out as a book in 1984. Jeffrey Mason sued Janet and the New Yorker for libel, and the case continued through the courts for a decade, before being decided in Janet's favor. In 1990, Janet published The Journalist and the Murderer, which looked at the relationship between Jeffrey MacDonald, a man who had been convicted of murdering his wife and two children, and Joseph McGinnis, a journalist who became close to him in the course of researching a book on MacDonald and his murder trial. This remains one of her most talked about books for its unsentimental examination of the journalist-subject relationship. Her The Purloined Clinic 
selected writings, 1992, collected a number of New Yorker pieces on subjects ranging from Vaclav Havel's prison letters to the New York City art world to the daily life of a Czech window washer and intellectual in the letdown after the Prague Spring. To write that last piece, she used her knowledge of Czech, a language she still speaks. Later books explored the relationship between the poets Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, The Silent Woman, 1994, the dogged dedication of a lawyer whose shyster client inveigled the lawyer in a scheme that landed the lawyer in jail, The Crime of Sheila McGuff, an overlooked book and one of my favorites, uh, the work of Anton Chekhov, she examined in Reading Chekhov, A Critical Journey, 2001. Uh, the maneuvers by which Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas were able to stay afloat in Vichy, France during the war, Two Lives, Gertrude and Alice, 2007. And her most recent book, Iphigenia in Forest Hills, published this year about a woman convicted of hiring a man to kill the woman's husband which I think is an amazing piece, maybe her best ever, and in some ways it's a summary of all her work that's gone before. Donald Malcolm died in 1975. Janet married Gardner Botsford, a much revered New Yorker editor, was at the magazine for many decades. He was Janet's editor for all of her later work until he died in 2004. Janet credits Gardner as a main force in shaping her writing. She has a daughter and a granddaughter, Sophie, who just went off to Oxford to college, and uh, Janet still lives in New York City. Malcolm's work is rich. It's intellectually complex, and it's great fun to read. A piece by her can be a wild ride. Her books have murders, betrayals, poison pen letters, breakdowns, acts of noble self-sacrifice and forbearance and love, lots of love, generally thwarted or misaimed or confused or wronged, and ambition and scheming and lives spent in doomed pursuits, and chaos. Janet does the most splendid chaos. One of the dicta of Harold Ross, the magazine's founder, was nothing is indescribable. Janet proves this. She describes chaos better than anybody. She takes you through splendid messes, as if you're on one of those old-time Orson Welles dolly shots, swooping into the heart of some chaotic thing and swooping effortlessly out. Her intent is moral. Every one of her sentences addresses itself more or less directly to basic questions of right and wrong. That's the inquiry that animates the whole picture and makes the story she tells us jump and rattle and crash. When Janet and I talked a short while ago, I embarrassed her by telling her I think she's one of the greatest nonfiction writers ever to appear in the magazine one of the greatest nonfiction writers ever. I'll say it again now and get the embarrassment out of the way. As her work has accumulated, we see a body of work that's unlike any other in contemporary writing, work that reminds us that nonfiction, a magazine piece, something we see every day, can rise to the very highest levels of literature. 
It's great that her work has appeared in The New Yorker all these years and that it continues to appear. So, Janet Malcolm. I was interested to learn as I researched your biography that you... Ian, may I thank you? Oh, no, go ahead. I'm just so, so moved and so, so happy by your words. And I could turn around and, and say the same words about you. Your work has been such an inspiration well, to me. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I just spent uh, the last you know, while, over the past, uh, actually, months and, and weeks, I read reread everything of Janet's, and uh, it really is fun if you haven't had that experience to start chronologically and read through. Though I didn't read the photography book, but everything after that up until Iphigenia in Queens. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is, or I want to ask Janet about, is Iphigenia in Queens. Um, and one thing I find in Janet's work that is wonderful is, is humor, and I want to read one of my favorite passages, which I hope you will find as funny as I do. Um, it's a piece from in the Freud archives. Jeffrey Mason is telling Janet about a psychiatrist whom he calls Dr. V, who has been his analyst and whom he has feared for his forceful personality and violent outbursts. Mason says... Once, after the analysis was over, I went to Dr. V's house for lunch. And I thought, there he is, just this ordinary little guy. And then a few weeks later, I met him at the Institute, and we were having this talk in his office about the psychoanalytic transference and how transference affects one's perception of physical appearance. And I said to him, you know, I always thought of you as an immense man, and it came as a great shock to me the other day when you stood up and I realized that I was practically a head taller than you. And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, just the fact that I'm taller than you. And he said, you, taller than me? You're out of your mind. <laughs> and I said, Dr. V, I, I am taller than you. I assure you. And he said, stand up. And I stood up, and he stood up, and I towered over him. And he looked me in the eye from a good four inches beneath me and said, Now are you convinced that I'm taller than you? <laughs> so to be polite, I said, Yes, I see. But I thought, This guy's out of his mind. <laughs> this is a scene from Mel Brooks. I mean, this is... Uh, and so when I read that you'd edited the gargoyle, I... I, I do you think of your pieces as funny? Do you stop and laugh out loud as you write them? Are there moments, or are they just, the, the funny moments, are they just sort of incidental? And, well, sometimes I do try to be funny, but in this case, it was Mason who was being funny. Right. He gave me this wonderful yeah. scene, and then he sued me for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is really the punchline, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, as I said, I want to talk about Iphigenia and Forest Hills. Um, I think it is a great piece. If you haven't read it, it's out now as a book uh, from Yale University uh, Press. Uh, it's an elegant uh, book, as we have copies of it here. And um, I urge everybody to read it. And the first question I want to ask you about it, it begins in a very dramatic way. 
it begins when the attorney for this woman, uh, whose name is Marina Borokova, who was uh, uh, a doctor who lived in Queens and uh, was accused of hiring a hitman to uh, kill her husband, and she was on trial with the hitman, the accused hitman, together. And in the, uh, uh, in the piece... Janet begins with the moment when the woman's lawyer puts the woman on the stand. Now, what's tricky about that is that moment happened five weeks into the trial, over five weeks into the trial, not to mention the murder, not to mention the investigation of the murder. She begins with this woman on the stand, and an entire story that preceded it somehow has to be uh, accounted for and included in this woman's testimony. So why did you begin there? Well, I didn't um, begin there when I first began trying to write the piece. I had many false starts, and none of them took me anywhere. And then this one, um, and I think you must find that too with with your Uh leads, as we call them in the trade, that the ones that take you somewhere become the lead. And then, or maybe you haven't had that experience. Maybe yours just comes from your head. No, I know. You'll look and see something looks better as a lead, and it's well into the piece, maybe. But did you begin chronologically earlier than the I moment? Began, yeah. I began with the prosecutor's narration of the story, which was, a, um, mm-hmm. he narrated it very well himself, his, mm-hmm. his version of it. But it, it didn't go anywhere. That's, that's my criteria for... Um, for beginnings, if they if they kind of peter out, then you're not you haven't got the right one. Whereas if they keep going, mm-hmm. um, you've got it. And this one this one kept me going. And also, it was a it was a very interesting moment. Right. And uh, you want to interest your reader. I mean, she was the most interesting thing yes. in the piece, and she was uh, one of the most compelling characters you've ever found. I think she was just. Um, later on in the piece where she's kind of been humbled and uh, you say she looked like uh, a captured princess in a Roman uh, triumphal, uh, triumph parade and, and suddenly you really see this woman. She wears her, her hair in a, in a kind of a turban and she's very thin and uh, uh, you also compare her to a young student revolutionary in, in Moscow so that uh, when you get when you start with her, it's really powerful. But then you do have to fill in the uh, um, the details of what's gone before. And what you do is it, it combines with the plot in that the plot of this trial hinges on the judge, who is just a complete idiot. <laughs> and it's so great to just watch an idiot. And and. <laughs> Janet's description as she begins, the the first thing she says about Judge Hanafi is his name. Hanafi is a man of 74 with a small head and a large body and the faux genial manner that American petty tyrants cultivate. (laughs) Just the, the, the strength of doing that because he has to go on vacation. So he has to go on vacation and as a result... Uh, he stops granting sidebars where the lawyers come up to talk to him because it takes too much time. And so with the sidebars, then, you were able to fill in all the details. I went through. I saw each sidebar 
was about some other important moment. And by the sidebars that are granted and the sidebars that are denied, you manage to fill in these, these back... Of course, the sidebars are the parts of the trial that the spectators don't hear, but uh, they're transcribed. So by then getting the transcript afterwards, and this, I think, is a very crucial step for a writer covering a trial, to get that transcript in order mm-hmm. to get the sidebars... You also fill in who this community, the, the community in which the victim, uh, the shooter, and the woman all live. And describe that community, because it's a really fascinating community. Well, they are, um, they're called Bukharan Jews, or Bukharian Jews, and they come from Uzbekistan. Um, and they go back in history, some say, to the lost tribes of Israel. Nobody quite knows why. Orthodox Jews should have um, appeared in that territory, but but they did. And they went through many um, kingships and finally through the uh, Soviet regime. And then after the breakup of the Soviet regime, they, most of them, emigrated either to Israel or to uh, Forest Hills, um, Queens. And um, the, the murder um, took place there at a playground, and there were these two wiring families, the, the um, Malakovs, which was, that was the family of the um, murdered husband, and the Borokovas, who already um, despised each other. So there was a big... Um, at the trial... <coughs> It was like a wedding. There was the groom's side and the bride's right. side. The father's family always were yeah. on in their side, and there were many more of them. And then there was the, the uh, Borokova side and her two sisters and her old mother. Um, and they would not really talk to you. They did a, on a couple occasions, but the mother didn't speak English. The mother her didn't mother speak did. English. She, she, when she occasionally smiled, you saw gold teeth. It's very striking. And the sisters were like kind of frightened animals. They didn't want to have anything to do with, with anybody, and particularly the press. But later, somehow, um, or maybe not somehow, after my article appeared in The New Yorker and I began going to family court trials uh, where the fate of the, the daughter of uh, Borokova and the murdered husband, um, her fate was being decided, who she was going to stay with and who she was going to be eventually adopted by. And then one day, one of the sisters did come up to me and say she's being abused by the brother um, she was staying with. They felt, I guess, both desperate enough and um, slightly reassured by my article. And that's after the article came out, but before the book came out, because it's, yes. that's in the book yes. that they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the story kind of sounded to me like an I.B. Singer story, mm-hmm. you know, where there was this kind of clash between two people, only there was no rabbi to sort it out. And so they had to go into, you know, they then got in- child services of New York City, and it just kind of chewed them up. Yeah, yes, that's a, that's a good summary of it, yeah. Um, after uh, the, the first half of the piece, in the first half of the book, um, 
Marina is on the stand throughout it, even though we have all this being filled in and, and the story is being told in, in uh, different veerings away from her testimony. And she's on the stand at the end of it. Uh, at the end of the first half of the book, she has just finished her testimony. And at this point, Janet does something in the piece that honestly had me holding on to the arms of my chair. A child services lawyer testifies, and you have asked him for an interview, and he turns you down, but then he calls you, and he talks to you. I'm going to make a little correction. He wasn't a child services uh, lawyer. He was... um, a legal guardian, and a few years ago, oh, right. um, this system was set up where children could have their own lawyers uh, to presumably be looking after their own interests, so it really, uh, in cases, in custody cases. And um, in actuality, <clears throat> these lawyers usually pick a side, either the, the mother or the father's side, and they're another lawyer for one... And the child never sees this lawyer. And often they they don't even see the child. Uh Anyway, so he was the legal guardian, and he appeared for the prosecution as a witness um, against her. And... um, Against Marina. Against Marina. um, Somehow um, arguing that she was a bad, bad mother and... This story is so complex. I mean, there, uh, I guess one detail maybe um, would be good to bring out is that before the murder, her child was taken away from her, um, which um, seemed to have precipitated the murder. It was a, a judge ruled that the child would go to the father. And then the theory of the prosecution was that she hired the man, to, the hitman, to kill the husband uh, in order to get the child back. So there's um, David Schnall, the legal guardian, um, testifying. And during a kind of intermission, he was sitting outside, and I started talking to him. Um, Journalists are always sort of trying to get interviews, and so I asked him if I could speak to him, and he said yes. He um, was interested in talking to me, because I had never heard of legal guardians, and I was interested in what they did, and um, interested in his take. What was the question? Well, he didn't talk to you at first. <laughs> oh, then we made a date to and talk. Then, then he, he called and said, well, he'd been advised by the prosecutor not to talk to me until the trial was over, uh, but left his number. And so I called the number back um, and got him. And then he, it's, instead of saying, well sorry, can't talk to you, Um, he started talking to me. He started talking about how he really thought the mother was a bad mother and he hoped she would be convicted. And then suddenly he said, but you know, my real interest isn't in um, being a law guardian. My real interest is in, and then followed about an hour of conspiracy theory, sort of very strange um, ideas about how the communists are running this country, and um, how there's nobody has sperm anymore, 
And, and, and Janet just, instead of taking notes on what the guy says, she just lists the topics. No, I was taking notes like But, that. I mean, it, it wasn't like the way it is. You just have the topics that he's, that he's on, like um, banks do not lend money. They have no money. Yeah. All the banks are zombie banks. Joseph McCarthy was right. We've been living under the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. We're a communist country. Orwell's father was a big technocrat. I mean, the reason it's, the, yeah, I mean, the reason it's, it's like subjects is because I was writing like mad, and, and, and he's talking very fast, mm-hmm. so this is really all I could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was enough. <laughs> and he really, he went on for, for really an hour, um, and finally... I, I, you ended the conversation. I ended the conversation. Yeah. I thought I had enough. And, and then I, then I um, had to make a decision, um, and a decision of the kind I've never made before in my life, which was whether to um, kind of intervene in what I was writing. I felt I should let the defense lawyer know this. Um, and I actually consulted with a lawyer friend um, and said, what should I do here? And he said, it, he said, it was my duty as a citizen that I should call that lawyer, which meant that um, he would then turn all this over to the other side, too. Everybody would, would know about it. He asked me to send him my notes, and I sent my notes, uh, faxed them to him. And um, then the next day... Um, no, it was a weekend, so it was the next Monday. There they all were in court with my notes and uh, were in front of the judge who, uh, and, and my lawyer had written, a, not my lawyer, uh, <laughs> interesting slip, uh, though um, I did identify myself quite early in the piece as somebody who had taken a side in this, so this mm-hmm. isn't a completely... Um, um, accidental slip. Um, he had written a motion um, asking that this, uh, this legal guardian be recalled for more questioning on the basis of these crazy things he had said and, and, and identified him as a delusional person. And the judge, um, as we might have expected, just sort of said, this is nothing. And actually, uh, you know, he says some very good things in there, the judge said. You know, he says, like, yeah, there is no shortage of oil. <laughs> <laughs> the judge agrees with certain things. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's a moment where you're reading along and you kind of, I mean, as I read it, I was thinking, no, no, don't call the you know, thinking you're you're supposed to be the journalist, and you're calling the the lawyer and saying, "Oh, I found out this guy's nuts," and uh, and yet, as you say, it was your duty. It's and this is when I was talking about how moral questions are are throughout that you would stop as a journalist at that point and step back and say, "Okay, what is my moral responsibility?" That's that was the shape of it. Yes, and and in the. Uh, piece, and again, this is at about halfway through. Uh, you're reading along, and, and Janet introduces uh, uh, another um, uh, trial in which 
the person is an opponent of, of Schnall. I forget exactly. But you start to talk about it, and then you say, but I've gotten ahead of myself. And with someone as careful as you, that's like a big moment. And you stop and think structurally what's going to happen here and in terms of plot. And, and then you make this call and, and nothing... I kept thinking, oh, this is just going to blow the trial out of the water. What will happen? And nothing happens. That's the incredible well, thing. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the beauty of this work, don't you think, Ian, that um, there are these surprises that come to us right. all the time, these, these gifts from actuality. I mean, I, I wrote uh, a book about the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and I would often be in situations where I'd be interviewing somebody, and they'd say, you know, I really need a ride to the clinic, or I really need, you know, and there was some crisis would come up. Someone would need my car to take them somewhere. And you sort of have to judge on a case by case, but I usually did it. But in those cases, did, did that have any effect on what you were writing? I mean, that was just something you could just leave out. Well... I, a lot of those cases involved giving people like forty dollars, <laughs> and these were characters in your yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so and as somebody described it as uh, ATM journalism because <laughs> I was always going off the ATM, uh, but it it wasn't quite like this where it would affect yeah. you know materially and significantly affect. The outcome, but in this, the, the impression I got was as if, in those, like at the end of our town, where the woman has died, and she comes back and she says to her family, you know, she's walking around in the house and she's saying to the family, "Can't you see how beautiful life is?" And they can't see her because she's. And this is just like you came from another world, the world of journalism, and it just, it oddly did not compute. It didn't. Register well, with it the was, judge. I did not, nothing like that had ever happened to me before, and probably won't since. It was kind of unique. It, it's it's a it's a wonderful moment, and the judge, of course, is then agitated, really trying to get his vacation. You know, he's he doesn't want any more delays. This is he was going to go on vacation on St. Patrick's Day or something like that. Yes. And this is moving up through March, and he wants the the. Uh, uh, the, the trial to progress. When I, I read an interview with uh, Janet did with Katie Royfe that's in the, uh, uh, it was in the Paris Review, and there's, uh, it ends with a very interesting thing you said, uh, talking about the Mason lawsuit. You said that it was painful, but, uh, quote, it was an experience I wouldn't have missed. It wasn't life-threatening, and it was deeply interesting. It took me out of a sheltered place and threw me into bracingly icy water. What more could a writer want? And when I... Throughout this piece, I thought that you're... You were kind of above this trial, and I thought that maybe that experience of having been thrown in the bracingly icy water gave you a kind of... Uh, immunity or a kind of strength that you might not have had without that experience? Well, it gave me an interest in the subject, and it also gave, mm-hmm. me, um, gave me some knowledge that I wouldn't have had mm-hmm. um, in, in the crime of Sheila McGuff. Um, I was able to use a lot of what I had learned mm-hmm. um, sitting in a courtroom and being, being the defendant, and then I 
uh, was able to extend this to um, Sheila. And um, I had had the, um, the experience, the good fortune, of having a second chance. I had, there, were, there were two trials in the Mason case, and in the first one, I, I lost, because I, I had been a terrible uh, defendant. I just didn't know how to do it at all. And, um, and there was a hung jury on how I was to be punished. So uh, there was another trial, and that trial I was able to prepare for. And, uh, and that's why I won, because I knew, knew what I was doing. In the first trial, I just was sort of sitting there saying, you know, why are these people asking me these questions? I mean, of course I didn't do anything, that, right? And you can't do that. You have to convince a jury. And then when I was writing about Sheila McGuff, she was doing what I'd been doing first. I mean, that's why I was so, uh, I felt very sympathetic toward her and uh, unsympathetic toward her lawyers who hadn't prepared her well. Your um, description of trying to figure out what she actually was charged with and what this guy's <laughs> crime, the, the swindler and the fraud, it was just so staggeringly complicated and ridiculous. And the time you said you could have learned, I don't know, I forget, flamenco dancing or something. <laughs> yes. And the amount of time that you spent trying to get to the bottom of Bob Bales's frauds and crimes. That was, that was, usually the, the reporting part is, is, is the part that you enjoy and, and it's a pleasure and the writing part is hard. But in that case, the reporting was tough too. Uh, that, that part of it. Was... It seemed to me like just amazing dedication to, to, keep, <laughs> to keep going. Um, Janet describes things just so on the money. And as I was going through, I underlined them and, and found ones. And, and uh, to return to the uh, Marina uh, Boruko, Borukova trial, I want to mention this description because her description of the prosecutor, a man named Leventhal, is just, you really hear this guy when he's, and, and you see him. When he starts to make a good point, he rubs his hands together. And his voice gets higher and higher and higher. And you can practically hear him get higher as he's pouncing on someone. But here's a description uh, from your uh, uh, description of the final summations. You describe the prosecutor. Uh, he's talking for a while about the hitman. And then he turns back to the subject of Marina, the focus of the whole piece. And this woman accused of hiring the hitman. And you say, but the hitman wasn't interesting to Leventhal. He dropped the unappetizing hitman from his maw and loped toward his more delectable prey. <laughs> you could just really see that guy. Um, it, also in the Royfe interview, you said that as you went along in this trial, that you understood Marina less and less. Do you feel that you understand her even less now, or how did that sort of happen? Yeah, she um, she was mysterious, um, and certainly when I interviewed the jury, it was clear that they didn't understand her at all. The jury was just completely turned off by her. That 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 aspect of her that, that you. Uh, we're getting at with the barbarian princess image. I mean, she was just, they said she was cold and aloof and um, 
obviously not a good mom. And, um, and they all but said, uh, that's why we uh, convicted her, because we didn't like her. This, I was quite shocked that they were so frank uh, about you talked to several jurors after, and there was one who might have been on her side, but you didn't get to talk to that her. That one I didn't know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't, I, I didn't, and I don't understand her. Uh, I would still love to have an interview with her. I'm, I'm going to be writing an epilogue um, to the paperback edition of the book, and um, it would be, I would love to be able to visit her in prison and talk with her. But so far, she has um, refused. The, the main piece of evidence against her, or the telling one that was, that's still hard to get around, is that she, uh, she and the hitman who was convicted, um, as she was, but the, that she and this man exchanged... Ninety... 90 cell phone calls in the few weeks in the in few, the weeks, few before weeks before the murder. the murder and the hitman said that they had to do with his health or his wife's health his wife's health his yeah. wife's health and when the police said to him but 90 calls and the hitman said how many calls are too many when it's your health <laughs> <laughs> like such a great line really Again. really a good line and and you can see how it totally did not <laughs> play with the police. Uh, in, the, in the later part, uh, you go to see the family of the man who was murdered. And the interview with the brothers and the other relatives, uh, I found this just incredibly moving. You always do just the place where you're sitting, where the tape recorder sits, the way the man puts a clean tablecloth on the table and then sets you set the tape recorder down and there there's a moment where the guy is talking about this son of his he was a dentist and uh the son has been murdered and the man just says my lovely lovely son and it just wrung my heart and before earlier in the piece you've talked about trials of as opportunities for journalistic malice that you know, they, they give you human frailty. They give journalists human frailty on which to, you know, whet their appetite. And, and that I'm wondering if there is a connection between the coldness of that curiosity and the power of that moment when the man just says, you know, my son, um, did you... Do you feel that to do that you change as a journalist or is there something in the coldness of the view that somehow makes that stronger when you get a, a, a moment of real pathos, you know, pathos at, as, as he showed at that moment? Well, I, I certainly felt when he said that, I, I was tearing up a bit. I mean, uh-huh. he, he was, he's moving, this guy. Um, but even though I had identified myself earlier as being on the side of Borokova and, and her family and finding something very alien about the, the father's people, and they were, I described them in one place as a kind of like a horde of um, <clears throat> almost like angry bees, and they, they, right. they seemed, uh, I, I didn't like them. But then when I came to talk to this family, of course, I, I, ch- I changed my view of them mm-hmm. uh, very much. 
and the, particularly the, the family of the older brother of the, of the victim, Joseph, who seemed to have a really nice family and nice kids. And they... Well, you've become quite affectionate almost. You're, you describe yourself kind of with your arms around one, arm around one of the kids yeah, who kind of snuggles were, up to you at the dinner table. They were, they were yeah. very appealing people. It just seemed like a nice, a nice family. And the kids tell you a couple things, too. You yeah. say they're giving you messages from the world of children. You know, I they, thought they were really trying know. to tell me what the little orphaned girl um, was going through. But then there was the second brother, Gabriel, who the child, for some reason, some bizarre reason, was living with rather than with Joseph. If she had been living with Joseph among these, you know, these nice kids who I was putting my arms around and the whole family seemed so normal, whereas Gabriel's family seemed not so normal. Something strange about Gabrielle. And there have been some developments now where she's been taken away from Gabrielle. The mm -hmm. story continues mm -hmm. uh, heartbreakingly. Well, that was the next thing I wanted to mention because you talk about a trial as competing narratives. And your description of the trial is so much more subtle and effective and ingenious that it actually includes all of these complications in a way that neither the defense, I mean, it would have been hard for either side to include them, of course, but yours is a stronger narrative than either side. What has happened, uh, and it, it seems to me that your narrative now kind of subsumes theirs in a way and has its own effect on the events uh, of this case in that they're now trying to get a retrial of the case. Well, there, there is an appeal, um, the appeal um, for Borokova. Ma uh, Malayev, the hitman, um, is not appealing. He kind of sort of has disappeared into his upstate prison. But she got Alan Dershowitz and his brother Nathan Dershowitz to represent her. Who knows how? She, she had no money, so somebody either is uh, sponsoring this or they're doing it pro bono, but they don't say. And um, I heard Alan Dershowitz argue uh, the case um, in Brooklyn about six months ago in the Brooklyn courthouse very effectively. He, he was very good. And Nathan, the brother, uh, wrote the actual appeal. And I was interested to see that they picked up some of the points that I had made about the unfairness of the trial and about the judge's vacation. And they even used a line from the piece where he told the defendant that I'm going to be sipping piña coladas uh, next, next uh, such and such Yeah, day. this time next week or something. Yeah, yeah. We'll be out of here. We'll be out of here. Uh, so in that, to that extent, I, I may have contributed to that appeal. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also there for them to see, too. Um, you do such a great job portraying nuts. <laughs> you do the best nuts of any journalist I've ever seen. And you stay with the nuts as they get nuttier and nuttier. And uh, uh, there's so many of these kinds of lost soul, delusional, nutty people in your, in your pieces. Uh, Peter Swales, who is Jeffrey Mason's uh, antagonist. Uh, he's a Freud scholar who detests Jeffrey Mason. Uh, Sheila McGuff herself. Bob Bales is another one. Uh, Trevor Thomas, the last person to see Sylvia Plath alive, is a character in 
uh, your book about uh, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And you describe him so uh, uh, wonderfully. I wonder, when you see people like this, do you have literary models in your head? Are you thinking of, like, a character from Gogol? Are you thinking... Uh, how do you see them when, when, you, when you get somebody like that? How do, you, how do you see them when you first see them? Well, in, in Trevor Thomas's case, I, when I stepped into his house, which was a, you know, a Collier's Brothers place with just this most incredible amount of stuff in a kind of almost sickening profusion. And the dust. And the dust on, you know, there was so much dust, you felt there was kind of dust on top of dust. Dust with its own, yeah. Its own dust. But anyway, I immediately did think of that uh, Borges story, the Aleph, which has something to do with some, that there's a, a man who kind of sees everything in the, everything in the world uh, is, in, is in his mind. He has that kind of a grasp, and I had that feeling of here was everything in the world. And, he, and also here was a very nice ending for my book. Well, the description of this guy's apartment is just so great because you've seen chaos. You see it. It's the main thing you see, really, in life. And, and yet, you just your mind goes blank and doesn't describe it. And you said um, the, about the chaos in his apartment, you said, this is the way things are, the place says. This is unmediated actuality in all its multiplicity, randomness, inconsistency, redundancy, authenticity. Before the magisterial mess of Trevor Thomas's house, the orderly houses that most of us live in seem meager and lifeless, as in the same way the narratives called biographies pale and shrink in the face of the disorderly actuality that is a life. Yeah, I used to write well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, journalists read your work because you talk a lot about nonfiction. I mean, it's not, or about journalism. And you write the kind of piece that changes how people see journalism. Uh, you're probably the most famous quote, the one that comes up again and again if you're Googled on, on uh, uh, if, you, if you look you up on Google, is the one at the beginning of The Journalist and the Murderer where you say that anyone, any journalist who worth anything knows that what he does is morally indefensible. But many other observations uh, are, are kind of along that line. The freedom to be cruel is one of journalism's uncontested privileges. Uh, and then at the same time, you make observations just about the technical side of journalism that, that are really fascinating. Like, you talk about tape-recorded conversations. And you say they resemble real conversations about as much as those uh, stop-motion pictures of Edward Moybridge, if, you pronounce, if I'm pronouncing that yeah. right, resemble watching a horse run. And that to try and take a tape-recorded conversation and make it sound like conversation is, is very difficult. Um, but here's, here's a more recent quote uh, from Iphigenia in Forest Hills. Journalists are thought to be competitive, and sometimes they are, but their main feeling about one another is fraternal. Journalists love one another the way members of a family, in their case, a kind of crime family, do. 
And in a piece in the magazine just last week about the German photographer Thomas Struth, yes. uh, there's a, a moment where he's just sort of talking about how Proust and has influenced his writing, and you kind of say, well, wh- what, when did you read Proust? He said, well, uh, never. I'm summing it up. But <laughs> the guy is just blowing smoke. And uh, he says, okay, that's not a good example. And you say, it was a terrible example. And then you both laugh. Uh, I wonder if, over time, your view of journalism may be getting more lighthearted. I think, yes, obviously. I mean, that's a very lighthearted moment, because you say, he knows I'm going to put this in the magazine. He knows I'm putting it in the story. He knows I'm walking off with this to the developing room. Uh, but that I think it's gotten, I, I ask as a leading question, because I think it has. But Well, certainly in this, in this case, I was uh, very sympathetic to, uh, to this subject. He, mm-hmm. he was himself a, a wonderful man. I mean, just that disarming, it's a terrible example. And it actually, it wasn't about. It was about some people called the the Becker or the Betchers. Um, this um, they're they're this kind of um, cult photographers, uh, very very much um, admired for taking pictures of um, water towers and mines and just this industrial vernacular. And um, he, they were his teachers and. I, I somehow have always been a little skeptical about the, the Betchers myself. So I was kind of needling him a little bit. You know, what's mm-hmm. so great about the, the Betchers? Mm-hmm. And then he kept coming up with these examples of, well, this is a great example of how um, they didn't just teach about the history of photography. They taught about how photography um, was connected to culture and to literature and... Um, Mr. Betcher always talked about Professor Betcher. I forget his first name. Um, um, how, in order to understand Ache, you have to see that Proust was in, involved in it. And and this is where I said, this is where I asked him. I, I said, I don't. Get, what's the connection? And then he said, um, whatever he said. And uh, and then I asked him if he if that was part of the course that they read Proust. No. And then. He, Said, well, did you ever read Proust? No. And then he said it was a terrible example. But it it makes him actually he's a very likable person in the piece. Totally likable. And and it makes him and then later he tries to say, Look, I, I know I that was kind of ridiculous what I said about Proust. And you say, Mm-hmm, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you said I, I said some soothing words or something, but we both knew that it was going to the the piece. But you know, this is an interesting example where not everybody agrees that this was a was a um, something that I should have done. Just like there are people who probably didn't agree that the Schnall thing was right. It made some people nervous. So you could argue that maybe um, there was a little too much self-reference in that, possibly. Um, it, well, it 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 makes it might have worked for you. It didn't work for some readers. I think anything that keeps people uh, awake, <laughs> because I read this interview with George Balanchine years ago where he said it's really tough with American audiences because you can do ballet and they just go right to sleep. <laughs> and I think that happens with things where, oh, this is the New Yorker and, you know? And, <laughs> And you want them just before they go to sleep to kind of go, wait a minute, what did she just do? 
And they kind of sit back up, and, and, uh, and they don't go to sleep. So I think we're coming up on almost an hour. Uh, maybe uh, there are... Uh, are there questions? Is this a time for questions, or have I done this prematurely? Maybe I have. Oh, there is. There are microphones. Hi. Hi. I've read your a lot of your work. I'm from Toronto, and we come here every year, so it's a great joy to see you. When you were talking about the moral compass that Janet Malcolm always has in her writing, and then this very last point that you ended on, I could see where it would be a hard call because obviously he must have been boasting a bit to pretend he had read Proust, and then he made up for it by saying that was a bad example, and then you're left with that dilemma, aren't you? Of of whether to put it in Mm -hmm. or not, yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, There you have it, that's, there's... um, Yeah, and it does keep the New Yorker reader awake in in what are very often long articles, so that's the, the plus. But I do wonder whether a person needs a drop of slack to be cut if they already confess. They did, you, did, you re- did you read this? No, I didn't read so it. I'd be curious to know what you thought. I will now for sure. What, 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 edition, what issue is it in? It's uh, last week. Okay, I haven't read it. I, I will read it. and Let us know. Did you, did you think about it a lot before you, you decided, or did you just say, I'll go for it? I said I'd go for it, but then there were some reservations of, uh, by readers uh, who read it before it was published, and I considered them, and, I, and, uh, and then I decided to go, still go for it. Well, it's fun. It's what makes journalism exciting. Thanks. Thank you. Um, hi, yeah, I'm a, a journalist and an avid New Yorker reader, and um, I actually wrote a profile over the summer. It was my first... And um, I read The New Yorker, and you guys capture people so well, and you reference this in your talk about um, the lawyer and the judge and everybody. And I just found, when I read The New Yorker, I find that it's just, it's so, it seems so effortless. And then when I was trying to do it this summer, I was just like, how do they come up with these descriptions that are, you know, so eloquent and also um, so relatable, and you just immediately get it? And I just wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that, about where you start or any advice you have for journalists? Mm. Well, um, I used to write, I still write Talk of the Town, and I used to write it a long time ago with uh, an older writer who was there named George Tro. And George would go out and take notes on an event, something he was covering, and then he would come back and he would go through all his notes and circle in red pencil the things that he really liked in his notes. And then he would take those things and put them in order of like, which did he like this much, which did he like a little more than that, you know, to the thing that he liked absolutely the most. And to structure a piece like that, he's going through his own feeling of affection for the subject or his curiosity or just his own aesthetic response to the subject. And 
a lot of times you come through school and you have to write about a lot of things that you have no desire to write about on your own. You just somebody told you to write about it. And it makes you forget that if you don't have that feeling of this is something I have, I love this, this is really great, that it gets a bit incoherent. But your own love for something actually has a structure because I like this this much and I like this a little more and I like this a little more and this is what I really like. Well, right there you have sort of a structure. I, I think to write about something that just moves you and fascinates you, and it's sort of, as I say, when you come out of school, it's hard because you don't necessarily do that in school. You, you do things that other people like that they want you to do. I'd like to add one thing. Um, you mentioned when you were um, giving my uh, biography that I had started by writing about um, design and uh, shops and maybe um, about the house column. And you just made me think about what I was doing when I was about your age. And I was writing, a, um, I think I was writing about e easier subjects than profiles. I was, I was going and looking and describing things. And, um, and I've been grateful for that apprenticeship. And you know, nobody really paid very much attention to those columns, so I also felt very you know, nicely hidden. <laughs> um, so may maybe you're, you're doing something too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Nicely hidden is a really is a good phrase. The talk of the town used to be unsigned, mm -hmm. and I used to really like that about it. That that you would just, I mean, one thing that was great about it was I would get compliments for talk stories I didn't write, <laughs> and that was always great because you'd say, "Yeah, that was pretty good." <laughs> um, I'm curious. You didn't get the interview with Burakova. Um, could you talk a little bit about writing that piece with sort of the center missing? Did you ever think that that would be fatal to the story, not being able to talk to her? Um, no, because I was able to look at her. I, I mean, I was there in the same room with her. Uh, so it felt um, that I was getting the experience that um, everybody else there um, was getting, um, and in some ways, maybe it was good that I didn't speak with her. I, I had the same um, feeling of rightness about not having interviewed Ted Hughes when I was writing about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Somehow, uh, she wasn't speaking uh, for obvious reasons, and he wasn't. It was. It seemed like a good balance. So, thank you. Um, given that technology has changed so much over the course of your career, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your writing process has changed over time and if you use a computer and how that's affected your writing process. You still use a typewriter, right? Janet and I used to <laughs> be the only two people that used manual typewriters. And uh, I wrote a profile. I went down to get my typewriter fixed. And he was the only guy that still fixed typewriters. I wrote a profile of him. And uh, <laughs> Janet wrote me a letter because she knew the guy too. And uh, <laughs> that was for years. I, I used a manual typewriter and, uh, and white out. Because it was insanity, really. There was, there was no explanation for it. 
the reason that I did it was that when I was a kid, my father was, he was a communications officer in the Navy, and he had a, some really cool typewriters. And he had all this cool typed stuff that he had typed. And to me, it was just, he had it, just the smell of it was exciting. And it took me a long time to kind of go beyond sort of World War II, I guess, because it was something <laughs> that was so exciting when I was a kid. And it seemed to me, I just, for a long time, people would say, do you use a computer? And I would say no. And then they would just batter me to death with reasons why I should use a computer. And so after a while, people would say, do you use a computer? And I would say no. I mean, yes. <laughs> and that would put them off, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't hear about it. But now I, I started using a computer, and it's vastly easy. <laughs> It's just, if you haven't used a computer, really, I cannot recommend it too high. Do you still use a manual typewriter? I don't. Same, I have the same story, but I thought you still did because I thought I got an envelope from you. For letters, I, I do still use it. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, uh, I still like the way it looks. Where Maybe you... because I wanted you to think I still use it. And where do you get your ribbons? Um... <laughs> I have about 5,000 of them. I would open my own shop if I could. No, I, I bought them over the years. I have them. They're sealed in plastic. When I did the piece about the typewriter repair guy, Mr. Titel, I got a bunch. I bought stuff from him. And there is in my town, Montclair, New Jersey, a guy who came to America from Cuba with the Mariel Boatlift who was the Olympia typewriter repairman in Havana. And he repairs my typewriter to this day uh, when I need a fix. So I can, uh, he has ribbons and everything. I can get you ribbons. I'm so good. <laughs> I'm so glad I came because <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah, no, I've got, believe me. Uh, but, but what has happened, that's, it's interesting because it just changes now all the time. And one thing that has happened that is really, uh, I find, incredibly annoying is that I will go and cover an event, and I'll take my notes as fast as I can, and the event will be on YouTube. And so then the fact checker transcribes the exact thing that the people said, and it's often rather far from what I have written. <laughs> and then I have to make my great quotes be what they actually said. <laughs> And that's so unfair. Um, but that's, that's just one of many things. You, now, you don't ever feel that you don't know something. I mean, the same thing has happened to journalists that happens to doctors, where a doctor can come in and tell you, well, you've got you know, such and such, and you go home and look it up, and then you know you think more than he does. If you write about something now that can be found on the Internet, people are going to immediately be able to cross-reference. You aren't just the only person who knows. I wrote this book about Siberia. I'm way out in the middle of Siberia. And I think, well, here I can pretty much say anything happened that I want to say happened. <laughs> and I got to a river, and I said, there's no bridge here. I didn't really look to see. We crossed it on a ferry, but I didn't go miles up and miles down to see there was no bridge on this river. But in my book, I said, no bridge on this river. Well, with, that was before you could do Google Earth. So the fact checker goes, well, there is a bridge. He went and found this place and looked on the river, and there was a bridge. So um, I try and do things that can't 
that just aren't on the internet. You're not going to find it. I definitely stayed awake while I was reading Iphigenia and Chorus Tills, and I think the main reason was because I was so aggravated. And what stood out to me was that the judge and David Chanel, the legal guardian, and you yourself as a journalist, you have this theme that arises about power that's unpoliced, and you, you know, you highlight it at the very beginning, saying about the potential brutality that a journalist can engage in. And then there's David Schnell not even meeting with the child, and how aggravating that is. And then the the judge being the arbiter of this woman's fate and wanting to go away on vacation. And I'm wondering if, in your decision to out your conversation with David Schnell, which was so surprising to you, if in any way that was maybe your attempt to police his power and to try and rein something in that maybe you thought was getting out of hand if you thought it was incumbent upon you to try and police what, what felt to me, at least as a reader, as something that had gone awry and that didn't have any kind of superior force mitigating it. Well, um, I'm wondering about your, the word police. I don't think of myself as a policewoman, mm-hmm. police person. Uh, but, um, and I agree with you. I mean, there were very bad things were going on, and particularly the, the power of the state over mm-hmm. this woman and her, her child that she had. I mean, that's a whole sub-theme of this, um, of this book, that once, once you pick up the phone and call the police and say there's domestic violence going on, you come into a system that eventually can take your child away. So, you know, the good side is that women are being protected, but the bad side is what, what some of the uh, results of this are. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that peace kept you awake and, 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 and mad. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Ian mentioned the, the famous first line of the journalist and the murderer. Um, I've been a journalist for a long time, not nearly as long as you guys or, or at the same level. Um, and that line doesn't actually ring true with me. I don't feel that, that what we do is morally indefensible. I think there are moments when you feel you're invading someone's privacy, that sort of thing. But on the whole, reporting politics, reporting the arts, um, reporting a hundred things in between, it's perfectly morally defensible, isn't it? If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd like to hear your, 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 your reasoning. Um, well, um, the line was a piece of rhetoric, and it certainly um, put it very, very, str- very strongly, and um, certainly many of the people that I've written about, I don't feel that I've... Um, done anything bad to them, on, on the contrary. Um, but maybe what, what uh, you might agree with is that we have the power um, to do harm to, to the people who talk to us, and, and that this, there's some problem here about, about that power. Yeah, there's certainly Which, a danger of us playing God at times. Something like that, yes, yes. yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. What, what, if I could just add, what I thought was, was so interesting about that book is that it, it takes a moral question that, that might not have occurred to you. Um, what kind of obligation does a journalist have to someone 
who has, I mean, McDonald was convicted of these murders. What kind of, do you have moral obligation to a murderer? And the interesting thing is, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not so much to the murderer as to yourself, that you're not going to, uh, as you, as Janet quotes the, the McGinnis letters, and he's just really leading this guy down the path. I mean, he's not telling the truth, and he's coming up with all these ideas, of, you know, the promises and things that are going to happen, really deceiving this guy. And that, that you, that there is a morality that operates there, even though you might think you've entered a, a world where you pretty much can do anything to somebody like that, and, and, it's, and you can't. So it, yeah. um, it's, it's, a, you know, it's one of, as I, as I was saying, the moral question that kind of sets things in motion. That, you know, that's, that's a good example of, of one of them. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, you say during the afterword of the journalist and the murderer, during the McDonald trial, that you felt like a fallen journalist. I was just wondering if you recovered from that conclusion or if you still feel that way. I think I said I was, I was the fallen woman of journalism. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, I don't think, I think I've been somehow redeemed or something. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, about the phone calls... Uh, pertaining to the hitman's wife's health, I was wondering how soon after the murder the phone calls stopped. Very so- yes, very soon. That that, that didn't help her case either. <laughs> <laughs> and the wife doesn't seem to have gotten better all that fast. I mean, she wasn't like. Interestingly, we never hear about the wife again. We don't know. Other other characters in that who we never hear about, who I find is totally fascinating. Uh, are the doctor's patients because when he is shot, he has patients in his waiting room. The so he, artist, yeah. he he has left his his office to take his daughter to meet the wife, and so the patients are sitting there. And so what the secretary comes out and says, the dentist has has been shot. I mean, <laughs> if you ever saw the movie The In Laws, uh, it's sort of <laughs> you know. Or the, de- the dentist, Peter Falk, is running out and, like, aiding his CIA brother-in-law and then running back and drilling some more and then going... So it's just kind of... I mean, it isn't comic because the guy got killed, but, but it is uh, still a real weird moment. And you talk to a couple of the patients, I think, don't you? Well, one of them was a witness. She was there uh-huh. with her daughter. She, she had been treated and walked out as he's walking out. With and the, sees him going to... But the, leaves, you're right, the, uh-huh. leaves this office full of the patients. All right. Yes, mm-hmm. yes um, I was one of the readers that had a slight problem with that Struth piece. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt like when you brought up this opportunity, because you don't just do it, you don't just talk about his Proust, his reference to Proust, you actually talk about talking about it. And I think, because you mentioned how it's like the journalistic opportunity here, like something along those lines. And, uh, and so I feel like it lets the writer off the hook when they say that, oh, there's this opportunity and now I'm taking it. Um, and it reminded me of in Two Lives, you mentioned one of the scholars who who is very straightforward. I think it might have been Burns. I can't remember Mm -hmm. his name. And you mentioned that the arrogant trait of a biographer's ability to thread together a story out of vignettes. And I was just curious what you mean by uh, arrogant. 
Mean by what? Arrogance in terms oh. of the biographer's ability. Like, because you're so good at that. Like, I was reading too long. I mean, it's just so good. And in Iphigenia, it's so good. Like, I mean, especially in Iphigenia, just because you have all these little disparate moments that you weave into this amazing story. And I guess I just, I was confused when you say that Burns doesn't have the arrogant ability. Mm -hmm. It just seemed really mean, sort of, to biographers. So I just wanted an explanation. You've you've asked what what they call a compound question in in a (laughs) trial. Um, So let me answer the first part, um, rather than making you restate it, which is what they always do, uh, sadistically. Um, um, about the the, the Struth um, and Ache, you know, he I, we had that little exchange where I asked him, did he read it? And he said no. But then later, we're coming out of a restaurant, and he comes he comes back to it, and he says, you know, I feel bad about the Proust and Ache. And then I make my remark about how that he's a practiced interviewee. And, um, and knows that I'm going to somehow develop this into my, in, in my journalist's dark room and, and, and that it's going to be there. Um, so perhaps, was this the place where you felt that I had gone uh, too far with... Yes, because yeah. I don't, I mean, you know, I just assume that you don't sit down and just write from A to B and then you're done. You know what I mean? Like, I figured you probably wrote that first part. You know, you write, you write the article and, you know what I mean? Like, you're not, you, it's not like you write it and then you stop. Like, you, you get to have that moment with Struth, and you've also mentioned the other moment before, you know. And I just felt like that moment lets you off the hook of having done that before. You know what I mean? Well, that was the idea, to let myself off the hook, of course. <laughs> That's what I was asking, you know, like, yeah. Well, you, you said earlier that some readers had a problem with it, and you were curious. Yeah. And I was saying, right. well, that's, that, was that-, wrong. that was why. But okay, I, I take your point. As, as for um, Edward Burns, I think I, I was a big admirer of Edward Burns' collections of letters, uh, which were wonderfully. He had notes um, about you know every few sentences there'd be some note telling you um, something in the in the life of the person that this illuminated. And I think my point about him was that he. <clears throat> His enterprise was was so much more legitimate, in my view, than the biographer's, that he would let the subject speak for himself or herself with her letters and do this um, helpful annotating, but didn't make a narrative out of what was in in the letters, which can be, I think, specious. Thanks. Thanks. I had a question about the decision to contact the wife's attorney about the Law Guardian. I was just curious. I can see why you would have preferred to contact the, the wife's attorney rather than the judge, given your impressions of the judge. Um, but as a journalist, would there have been any ethical or legal problem with simply reporting it, um, whether in, the, in a newspaper or in even a blog, if time was of the essence, and then let the legal system take it and do with it what it would? Well, I did consider not um, calling um, the defense attorney and just putting it in my piece, which would come out months later. But, of course, that would be too, too late. 
And um, the problem with um, contacting the judge, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to get in touch with it. They don't, they don't deal with the press. They, 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 they're somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and, but by contacting the defense attorney, I was contacting the others too. I mean, that's... Right. But it, I'm saying if you had just, if time was of the essence, if you had published it um, in just any kind of forum that had less of a lead time than your article was going to have, would that have been an option for you? Well, I don't think about publishing anything anywhere else. You don't, you don't blog. I don't blog, no. Okay. okay. I, have, I have a computer, uh -huh. but, but, I, but I don't blog yet. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the question from a woman earlier about description uh, reminded me that one of the really characteristic pieces of your work um, are the descriptions of rooms, and I think you've used that really effectively for the many pieces that I read, and it comes up in the Katie Royfe um, interview where, where she, you say something and she immediately starts taking notes on your room in, in almost a, a didactic way, like as if you were teaching her. Or, or she obedient takes way, way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she suddenly, you know, starts talking about your couch. Um, and I was curious, you know, what is, did that come out of your work long ago? Is that your, why is it space and those f sort of physical details about someone's home? Um, and how do you pick that out? Are there things that immediately pop up, like the, the dust upon dust? Or is it something that you have worked in and, and becomes part of the character of the people that you describe? I, I guess rooms and objects have always been an, an interest, interest of mine. Um, and I guess it isn't an accident that I started writing by writing about things that you put into rooms. And I, I did go to the high school of music and art and had a sort of visual high school education. So it's, it's, it's an important part of uh, my life, Look, looking at things, looking at how people live, looking at my own house. Thank you. Um, Ian mentioned the book about Siberia. And I was going to ask, um, how did you come up with that idea? It's not an article, a series of articles, it's a book. I wouldn't call this idea morally indefensible. I think it's a very interesting subject. But a whole book, I, I would be very interested as um, somebody who was born to Russian parents in Rome and then lived in London, now live in New York. How did you come with, with, up with this idea? Um, I've written about places before, and uh, I wrote about the Great Plains, uh, the Great Plains of the United States, <coughs> excuse me, and there are a lot of connections between the plains of the United States and Russia uh, and Siberia. And I just found it completely, it was just another thing that fascinated me. Uh, when I was growing up, Russia was on the other side, you know, you couldn't go there. It was this mysterious place and you couldn't, Siberia was even more mysterious than Moscow or Leningrad because it was, much of it was closed. So it was an opportunity to travel that hadn't existed before. And when I do a travel book, uh, I look for the genre. Have there been good books written in this genre? And there are hundreds and hundreds of books about Siberia, travels in Siberia, about not just exile, but you know, 
uh, exploration and people who crossed it and, and books going all the way back to the Mongols coming out of Siberia and wasting places on the margins of the steppes. So it just seemed like, seemed like a good subject. And, and Russia is just, there, Russia is about 50 times more literary than any other country. I mean, I don't know why, but they just, you go around Russia and there's statues of writers all over the place. I mean, it's, and of course, it's also about the biggest mess of a country I've ever seen. So a country that really likes writers is liable to mess, mess up. But, uh, but I just, it seemed like it would be a good, a good subject because, um, uh, and it and it seems it, it it's a destination. It gives you kind of a challenge. It gives you a structure. You're going to cross the place. You're going to travel in it. Um, there were a lot of reasons. People do ask me always, "Why did I do that?" Though, and I still really haven't found an answer. I guess I, I always I get the question regularly. But thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, question for Miss Malcolm. Uh, I hope it's not intrusive either. It's just uh, Mr. Fraser mentioned it in his opening. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it was like to be married to your editor. Um, how that, uh, well, he said you cited it as a big influence on your writing, so that's why I ask. You know, uh, it seems like, well, what, what was that like? Did that affect the editing process at all or not? <laughs> and, I certainly meant this as a serious question. I'm interested in that. I don't know why everyone's laughing. Well, my husband had been my editor before we were married, and then when we were married, um, Mr. Sean, William Sean, the editor of The New Yorker, um, called me in and said, well, um, who's going to be your editor now? And he said, maybe um, John Bennett, or he, he mentioned another editor. And I said, What? why should I have another editor? I want Garnet to continue. And he said, well, I thought you wouldn't want your husband as your editor. And from your question, I gather you think that there is some, something complicated about it. But in our case, um, it was completely uncomplicated and um, totally wonderful. Uh, we just worked together as we had worked before and, um, and could do it at home. That was the, the benefit. <laughs> Thank you. I'm told I can. We have time for one more question. So, I have a question for both of you, but maybe primarily for Ms. Malcolm. Uh, when you decide to start working on a profile, has it ever happened to you that you started working and then you decided to give up? And if so, what made you so? And same question. I know you mainly specialize in, I mean, not necessarily in profiles, but what, make you, what makes you give up my story? Um, I've had a um, couple of instances of this. Uh, I was going to do a profile of a psychoanalyst named uh, Selma Freiberg. Uh, she did very interesting work with, with children and um, <clears throat> went out to San Francisco to, to interview her. And she died. So that was... <laughs> that's not funny. <laughs> and, and interestingly, I, I thought I would continue to do the profile anyway. I had done a lot of research, and I continued to admire her. And, and this is what was curious. Then I went back uh, to talk to um, 
her colleagues, and because she had died, they somehow felt free to badmouth her. And then I, then I got very confused, and I, I dropped the project. So that's one. And then a few years ago, I um, went to Dallas to do a piece about some collectors who had donated a, a lot of works to the, to, the, to the museum. And I thought it would be a very interesting opportunity for me to, to sort of see what these collectors, um, see the work and see their, these kind of palaces they built for their collections. And it was a fascinating trip, but when I came back, I found I didn't really have any, anything to really write about. So that's my experience with that. What about you, Ian? I once, uh, the truth is I don't ever really give up. Even, I mean, if I think, well, I, it didn't work out, but I still keep something in my mind. And I wanted to do a piece about steamboat explosions. <laughs> and I found that it had no plot. Because <laughs> they just blew up. <laughs> and then you're talking about the next steamboat that blew up. And so I gave it up. But I still have all my steamboat explosions. So I have a big box of it. Thank you. So. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you.